Well, good morning. Our God is good, isn't he? Yeah. So we're starting a new series that will run for the next two months on praying like Paul. Um, Prayer is a tricky thing, and the one, choosing the right example is pretty important. I saw this recently. I love peanuts. Here's a little bit of insight from Linus. Linus says, I I think I've made a new theological discovery. What is it? If you hold your hands upside down, you get the opposite of what you prayed for. Now, we are not going to be doing a series on praying like Linus. We'd run into all kinds of problems. But instead, and we'll flip to the next slide, we want to talk about praying like Paul. And today, I'm going to have you turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 13 in our time together today. A couple things, though, by way of background. Because you look and you say, oh, this is good. Finkbeiner's only preaching on five verses. Yeah, but I'm kind of jumping around to some other verses in Thessalonians in the process. So don't get too excited about it. But a couple things by way of background. In this passage, you know, when you talk about prayer, you can be talking about prayer in a lot of different dimensions. This is specifically praying for others. Okay, that's, that's where the focus is going to be on this particular text. And here's what's interesting to me. It's, it's not a generic prayer. I mean, we've all had those kind of generic prayers when we don't know Bill real well and we just say, Lord, bless Bill. You know, it's just kind of this generic umbrella cover for whoever Bill is. Paul is invested in the lives of these people. And and this prayer is really an overflow of deep-seated, intimate love for others. So so I thought about this. Here, Here we are talking about prayer, but there's really something that comes even before it, which means deeply invested. And so one of the things you'll find in Paul's prayer, because Paul will have prayers in most of his epistles, is there's a specificity to his prayers. And and yeah, they're all at the end of the day about honoring God. I, I get it. But it's all custom made to that particular group and that particular people. Do you see? So, so Paul is invested in these people. And here here was the conviction as I thought about this. I mean, we know this in the lives of our children, don't we? I mean, when something's up with your children or your mate or a close relative, man, you know how to pour out your heart to God in specific terms for them. And continue that and learn from that as we talk through this passage. However, this passage is about the family of God. And what does it mean for us to be so invested in the lives of others that when we pray, we pray out of love with specificity? Do you see? I'm all for praying that people get a job and get A's in their classes and all kinds of good stuff like that. But you're going to find that this prayer is more robust than that. It's not that it excludes that. It puts all that into context. So that's the one thing. The other thing I love 
about Paul so much. When you look at Paul's prayers in general, and this isn't true of all of his books, but generally, Paul normally has with all of his prayers a thanksgiving section and then a petition section. And what I love about Paul is um, he's not on the one hand naive where he says everything's good. No, he realizes People need to change and advance and progress. But neither is he merely a critic, a negative critic, where everything's bad, this person's no good. Have you ever had those feelings with your kids? Not that you don't love them, but there's times where you're thinking, like, I feel like all I ever say to them is no, 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 stop, no, 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 you know, when they're really, really, really young. And and sometimes if if we're not really careful... We can be negative toward other people. And one of the things about Paul is he has this wonderful way at looking at what God is doing in people's lives. You say, but it's incremental. It's awful small, Doug. I get it. But it's there nonetheless. And he looks at what God can do in their lives as they respond to him. And he has this beautiful balance. Can you imagine talking with Paul before he writes the book of 1 Corinthians? And you're saying, hey, Paul, you're going to answer questions and you're going to talk about one problem after another. Like, how are you going to start out this letter? You know? You know how he starts out the letter? He starts out the letter by saying, I thank God for these things in your life. Now, there's a couple things I'm going to talk to you about. (laughs) And it's the rest of the book. But still, with Paul, he's not this negative critic that only sees the bad. He sees what God is doing. And neither does he say, it's okay. It's not okay. We've got a distance to travel. Isn't that a beautiful balance as we approach one another? We we look for the incremental growth, but we don't stop there as, as we look to the future. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background specifically on Thessalonians. I don't know if you'll be able to, we'll pop to the next one here more. Can, can you guys in the back see that that's a map okay, to someone? Okay, all right, all right. And uh, Cy had given me one of those uh, light things, and I forgot to bring it today. So, sorry. All right, so I'm just, I'm going to have to talk. Here, here's the problem. Um, I don't even know if I can point, but, but do you notice up in the left corner where it says Macedonia? Can you see that Macedonia and coming down to what's called Achaia, what we call Greece today and so forth? Here's one of the things. Paul, on his second missionary journey, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus on his second missionary journey. I mean, he was like set on that. And every time he headed in that direction, the Spirit of God said, "Uh uh-uh, you go this way. So he turned and went north. And then he said, I'll go here. And then God said, "Uh uh-uh, and he turned and went here. And he literally goes to the coast. He gets to Troas and like, you know, Paul, like, he knows where God doesn't want him to go. So he just goes. And he keeps just doing his job. And he gets to Troas and he finally gets this vision. From Philippi. And he comes over to Philippi. And then he's going to go to Thessalonica. And one of the things you find is this. Every place Paul goes, somebody hates him. So he gets to Philippi. I mean, God wanted him there. And what do they do? He casts a demon out of a girl. Frees her. And his master gets so upset, they take him and they bring him before the court, and they 
beat him to a bloody pulp and he's where he could almost die. And he leaves Philippi. And he goes from Philippi, and we don't have details until he actually gets to Thessalonica, and he comes to Thessalonica, and what does he do? Paul just gives himself to people for the glory of God. He gospelizes them. He's got pains and soreness and all that stuff, but he just gives himself. And in the midst of all that, certain Jews rise up, and they become jealous because God is using him. They turn on him, and again, Paul barely gets out of Thessalonica with his life. And he goes to Berea. And the Jews follow him there. And all all he wants to do is love people in the name of Christ and share Jesus with them. That's all he wants to do. He's not looking to change political structures or anything. He just wants them to know Jesus. And they go after him there. And he leaves Berea. And he goes all the way down to Athens. And we know as we read through Thessalonians, because he's had to leave Thessalonica so quickly, His heart is burdened, and he's thinking to himself, what happened to those folks? I mean, he was only in Thessalonica weeks, you know, maybe two or three months, not long at all. And he shared with them, and he saw what God was doing in his life, and then, man, he's gone. He barely can't even say goodbye. He's just gone. And he's sitting in Athens, days, days away from traveling back up there. He can't go back up there because when he left Thessalonica, they brought somebody before the court and they said, if that Paul guy ever comes back here again, you're dead. So he doesn't even know when he can ever get back. Now, he will get back later. But he's just, he loves these people. And he's, he's wondering, what happened to these people? Where are they? So he's in Athens. And Timothy comes because Timothy had stayed up in Berea for a little bit. Timothy makes a long trip down. And I, I've often, when I get to heaven, this is one of my questions. Because Paul looks at Timothy and says, man, I want you to travel days. It's going to take you 10 days, two weeks to get back up there. But I want you to go all the way back up to Thessalonica and tell me if they're okay. And he goes. And Paul finishes in Athens. He comes and he settles in Corinth. And he's preaching and he's committed. But in the back of his mind, he loves the Thessalonians. And he's saying, God, what happened to the Thessalonians? Where are they? I mean, there's no cell phones. <laughs> right? I mean, we, we can't imagine what this is like. He has to wait. So poor Timothy has to travel two weeks up and two weeks back. It's, it's five, six weeks. I don't know exactly how long until he finally comes back to Corinth. And he says, Paul. They're doing great. And Paul sits down and writes the letter. And I love this with Paul. You know, if, if, if this was like a, a, a Bible college or seminary class, and I would talk you through and I would say, look, this is the way epistles work. There's always an introduction. And in the introduction, you have a prayer of thanks to God. And then you have a prayer of petition to God, the addresser, the addressee, and you've got to go through the whole thing. And then it's done, and you go to the body of the letter. You know what happens when you come to Thessalonians? Paul breaks all the rules. Because, like, you're supposed to get that done in the first chapter. I mean, that, that's how you do it, get, get it done. Paul wanders. He doesn't fit, finish his introduction till the end of chapter 3. 
which only leaves him two chapters for the body of his book. Why? Because Paul is so emotionally invested in those people that he starts giving his introduction and he starts talking about thanks and then all of a sudden he wanders off and says, hey, this is really, really good and I remember when I was with you and God did this and oh yeah, and then Timothy came and oh man, do I thank God and then, and then back into back telling us the back story again and he doesn't finish his thanks and, and petition until you get to the end of chapter 3. And it, again, it shows you how much he is invested in these people. So let's walk through chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. And I'll be referencing some other parts of the letter as we go. And what I would say to, to you is this. Be thinking in your life of believers, believers in whom you've invested your life. You, you, you have given yourself to them. And, you know, sometimes that can be very frustrating and be very difficult because they don't always respond appropriately. I get that. But be thinking of them and ask yourself how you can pray this prayer for them. Does that make sense? Because that's what God wants to do in our lives. So look at what he says here in chapter 3 and verse 9. What Thanks. Okay, this is the third time he said, talked about thanks to God in the first three chapters. Remember I said, he just, he'll start saying it, and then he's off, and then he's back, he's off. He just, and here he is again. So he settled down again. All right. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice because of our God, because, because before our God on your account? So, Paul in, in, in a kind of an expanded way, if you go back and read in chapter 1, Paul will say this in chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope and our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. You know what he says? Paul says, I got the word back from Timothy. And, and all I can say is, God, I thank you for working so powerfully in their lives that there is this deep-seated faith in the heart that produces work. There is this deep-seated love for you and for others which produces labor. And there is this settled hope that you are God and you alone and you have sovereign control of everything, that there is steadfastness in the way they live their lives in the midst of persecution and trouble and pressures around them. Isn't that powerful? And, and Paul says, Timothy comes back and Paul says, yes, God, you did it. Because who else would do it? Only God could do it. And he thanks him, he thanks God for the way that they received what he said. And he said, you guys, I was only there weeks. And your testimony has rippled out all the way up and all around Macedonia and all over the place. 
I mean, people are speaking about you, and I thank God that he has so powerfully worked in your life in the midst of difficulty that you from the inside out of your faith, love, and hope in him live the way you live. That's how we should be praying for one another. We should be able to look at individuals in the chapel in such a way that we track enough with their life that we can thank God for that kind of specificity and stuff that he's doing in their lives. Are we there perfectly as a church? No. Do many of you live this out? Yes, you do. And I just want to encourage you, that is... When you invest and you see God change, our lives should be, God, thank you for what you're doing. Because you're doing something that only God, isn't that true? I mean, you look at your own life, some of the change God brings in your life. Like, could you have ever produced that just by, like, working harder? No. You know. Now, you have to respond to God as he's at work. I get it. But at the core... It is God who is working in you to change you. And Paul says, when I look back, I just thank God. So, Paul, that's it. Just thank God for what he's doing. Say we got this far. That's about as far as you get. Whatever. No, 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 no. Paul is an optimistic realist. He is... He sees where people are. He sees what they're struggling with. He thanks God for the incremental growth that he's given. But he looks forward to what God can continue to do. And he doesn't just settle for what God has done. Do you see? So what's he say here in three, chapter 3 and verse 10? As we night and day... Ed, I was thinking of your, test, uh, your testimony a little bit about this, uh, this night and day, kind, kind, of, kind of this sense of it's always there. You know? It's just always there. Okay. Um, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, here's, So here's his specific petition in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord Direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and, and abound in love for one another. So Paul looks back, and he thanks God. Paul looks forward, and this is, this is powerful, folks. This is something I hadn't thought about with this passage, though I was looking at it this time, this week. As Paul looks forward, he doesn't just pray for what God's going to do in their life from, the, from a distance. No, he doesn't just say, God... Help them to keep on growing, which is a great prayer. Do you see what he says here? God, as hard as it is to get back to Thessalonica because of what they did with Jason and, 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 and the government and all that stuff, I get it, I get it. But God, will you please allow me to enter back into their life and to be a conduit through which you continue to bring change to them? Do you see that? So he, he's not merely looking back and saying, God, I thank you the way you've used me in their life and where they've come. Yeah, 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 yeah. But now he looks forward and he says, God, 
as I look forward, will you continue to use me to transform them? Isn't that a great way to pray for each other? Oh, who can I use as an example? Jim, I just saw you, so you get used here. I'm going to use Jim. Here we go. So I'm looking at Jim. Jim and I have a relationship, and I'm thanking God for the way he's used me in Jim's life and, and, and all that specificity. But I also say, God, I'm not saying sayonara to, to Jim, like kind of go and do your own thing. I'm saying, God, will you continue to use Doug Finkbeiner in Jim's life to bring Christ-likeness and transformation? So he continues to pray to be invested. Can you imagine if we pray like this? We're invested, we love, we thank, and then we don't say, I'm done with that one, I'm moving on to the next person. No, 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 no. God, will you continue to use me in their lives? And what I love about Paul, and you'll find this when you read through 1 Thessalonians and when you read through the book of Acts, when Paul says God used me in their lives, he meant two things. He always meant by what I say because of how I live. So he's going to talk to them about a work ethic. But he's not going to talk to them about a work ethic if he hasn't lived it. And he's going to talk to them about sexual purity because he's lived it. So he says, God, use me in their life. But Lord, I don't want to speak to them from a distance like, hey, you know what? Just do this because that's what God wants. I want to be able to say, do this because it's what God wants. And I've wrestled through it and God has brought transformation into my life. I'm not perfect either, but I'm in process. And God is doing these things and he wants to do it in your life too. Do you see the difference? This is not prayer from a distance, even though he's many miles away. This is prayer up close for continued investment in their lives. Look at what he says. Let me, let me just read the, the rest of uh, verse 12 here. I, I, let me read for just a minute chapter 4, verse 1. I love this. Here's the balance. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually walk, that you may excel still more. And, and look down for just a second, if you would, at verse 10. The very end of verse 10 says this, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. You know what Paul does not only does he say, God, I want you to in, use me to continue to invest in their transformation. He does say that. But he says, God, I want you to do the work that only you can do in very specific, concrete ways. So that's why he says in verse 12 that you may, that, 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 and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't want to just see it increase. He wants to see it abound. Last night we had vanilla ice cream, chocolate ice cream with peanut butter in it, and fresh raspberries. And my bowl abounded. 
They may have had two scoops. I had three biggies. And I poured on those raspberries. You know what I'm saying? Paul, Paul looks forward. He says, God, I, I don't want your transformation in their life just to increase. Yeah, incremental growth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. But I want that baby to abound. See, I just want it to like grow so that when you look at your life 10, 5, 10 years from now, you go like, holy mackerel. God and God alone is the one that does that. So he says, I, I want this to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we do also for you. There's his example again. So that God may establish your hearts unblameable or blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, Paul talks about what I would call holy love. And, and he says, God has brought you this far, but I want you to excel still more and more. And I know as I'm talking to you on the outside, God is teaching you from the inside. Isn't that our great confidence with people who know Christ? Like, if you're here today and you're visiting with us, we come, keep coming. We love having you here. But perhaps you're visiting with us and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. None of this stuff can happen in your life until you know Jesus. Because you have to be forgiven by him, given of the spirit, so you can be transformed from the inside out. That's how it works. So we're so glad you're here, and you can listen to what God wants to do in your life, but you got to come to know him first. But if you know Christ, God wants you to have a holy love. Paul is not afraid to talk about touchy issues. If I stand up before you and say, I want to talk to you about sex. Number one, it arouses your curiosity. And number two, you normally feel a little bit uncomfortable. As does the speaker, right? But that's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, I want you guys to excel and abound. I know, Thessalonians, you live in a culture that has perverted sex in every way imaginable, has given permission for fornication and adultery and premarital and postmarital and extramarital and just the, all the stuff. I want you to have a holy love for one another. I want you to realize when you step out of the boundary that God has given you in the area of sexuality, which is only within the context of a husband-wife relationship, only, you always defraud somebody. People are always hurt. No, we're just being free. Baloney. People are always hurt. And you are dishonoring the very God that has given you of his spirit, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. He talks hard here to people he loves deeply about specific issues in their life that are a little bit uncomfortable. Sex. Gets to verse 9 of chapter 4. He talks about work ethic. How do you like if I'm evaluating how you're doing at your job? Think Binder's going to come and he's going to evaluate your work ethic. I, don't you feel uncomfortable with that? Look, 
when I have somebody come in every semester, I've got somebody from the school that comes in to evaluate my teaching. And they sit there and you do your thing. Because you know they're coming, so you try to have an extra good one that, that day, yeah, of course. But, but, but they're, they're there and hmm, 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 hmm. And then afterwards, you get together with them and they say what they liked and what they didn't like. And it's good. It's all part of the process of growth. But you don't particularly like that, do you? Because that's what I do. I, I, I teach. That's, that's, you know, that's what I do. And now somebody's coming along and they're evaluating all that stuff. And so Paul's really happy with people he deeply loves to talk about sex and their work ethic. Because he says, there's some of you who are thinking, and we don't know exactly why, for, for a host of reasons, maybe these Christians are really nice people, so I'm entitled. I can just do whatever I want and don't have to work and they have to help me. And Paul's saying, uh-uh. Don't work that way in the body of Christ. We don't do that stuff. But you see what I'm saying? He says, God, not only do I thank you where you've brought them, but I want them to excel still more and more. Will you use me in that process? And will you change them in specific, concrete ways, in holy love in the area of sex, and work where they're struggling with issues of entitlement. Will you change them there? Will you help them to excel more and more so that their hearts will be established? So you put a post in the ground and you put in that concrete and it's stable and it doesn't move and it's established. And he says, I want your hearts to be set and established so that when you stand before Jesus Christ one day, you won't be perfect. None of us are. You're forgiven. You're seen as righteous through Christ. And you'll be blameless, not because you're perfect. You'll be blameless because you've responded and repented and you've yielded to the working of God through your life. And you never are perfect. We none of us ever are. But you're progressing. And God says, that's blameless. Do you see? So, so if I can put it into one sentence, here it is. Pray that God will continue to transform fellow believers into holy lovers. By continuing to use us in their lives. I think at the end of the day, that's, that's what Paul is saying here. And I, I just wrote down a couple th quick things to hit with you, and then I'll let you go. Notice, our prayer should be directed to God and his power because that's the only thing that will change people. Doug Finkbeiner will never change Doug Finkbeiner. Not in a permanent way from the inside out. I can do it on the outside for a while. <laughs> Not long term. Our prayers must be an overflow of our loving investment in the lives of others. If I don't love you, I probably won't pray for you much, to be honest with you. That's just, that's kind of the way it is. Need comes and somebody talks to me about, I get prayer requests a lot through the college about people's brother-in-law, sisters, uncles, aunts. And I pray for the person. When I get the request, I pray for them. But I don't know them. And I forget. 
But if Jim calls me, says, I got this issue in my life, that's different. Because I see Jim, and I know Jim, and I love Jim. You, you see the difference? Our prayers should be specifically focused. I need to know Jim well enough that when I pray for him, I pray for him in terms that God wants to transform Jim. I mean, I can say God bless him. God's great. God can do anything. Okay, I get that. But is it not better to know Jim so well that Jim can share and I can pray specifically, God, will you help him to know your power there? There. Specificity. Our prayers should be shaped by hope. We should be optimistic realists. We know what sinners can do. We know what we do. But we're optimistic because no matter where people have been, no matter what they've done, because the Spirit of God is at work in their life, we know what God can do in the future. We are people of hope. Our prayers should only enhance our relationship with those people. Prayer is not, glad I'm done with that one. Prayer is, God, get me back to them somehow to use me. Somehow. And our prayers should always recognize that although God brings the ultimate change, he uses us to bring that change in the life of others. Isn't that an amazing thing? He didn't need to use us, but he chooses to use us. So, are you thinking about somebody right now, a group of people, that God wants to do that in their life through you? That takes prayer to a whole different level, where on the one hand we say, God, Thank you, and God, use me to continue that process. Let's pray. Father, we are both encouraged and challenged when we come to your word. We're encouraged because we see you there. We're challenged because we see ourselves there. And we know how far we fall short apart from your enabling grace. Lord, I pray that your spirit will bring to the mind of each one sitting here today people, believers, in whose lives we can be invested and pray with specificity like Paul, like this, in their lives. And Lord, we, like Paul, will say our joy is overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed in joy as we realize that you are using us. God, thank you. And continue that good work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.